Children ages three through first grade, you are dismissed for a right-sized portion of God's word and the gospel through Children's Church. Your teachers are in the back, in the middle. Parents, if this is your first time, you can go with to make sure that you know where to pick up your children after service. Due to the length of the scriptural passage today from Daniel 6, I would encourage you to remain seated while we read from God's holy word. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel was so distinguished, uh, so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in the conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for the charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, 
so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried over to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I have issued a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and during the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we've been uh, in the book of Daniel over these last several weeks, we've continued to see that your word gives us uh, revelation and insight that we need uh, in exile. And so, as those who uh, belong to you, living in this world, seeking after your kingdom, we pray that once again, you would give us heavenly wisdom, that you would help us to see what you would have us to see in this text, that you would draw our hearts into uh, the grand story of redemption centered upon Jesus, that you would work out your purposes this morning as we consider your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a really, 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 really famous story. Uh, I don't know, like maybe one of the most famous stories that I can think of in the Old Testament. I didn't grow up in the, in the church, but this week I watched the VeggieTales thing just to make sure there weren't any insights I was missing or that you all would point out. Um, you know, there's the songs, Dare to Be a Daniel, I listened to that. Uh, that one's really old, actually, um, which I thought it was a more modern sort of thing. So here's what stood out to me as I was looking at the text and studying it this week. Daniel is certainly, you know, a main character in this story, but there's a lot in chapter 6 that is not focused on Daniel from his experience or from his perspective. What we have in chapter 6 is a contrast. There are three characters the first is a collective, it's a group, it's this group of government officials who are trying to get rid of Daniel. The second is Darius, 
And then the third, finally, is Daniel. And the contrast that this text shows us, like so much that we've seen in Daniel so far, is a contrast really between two kingdoms, between two ways. There's the way of the earthly kingdom, and then there's the way of God's kingdom. The way of the earthly kingdom, as we've been seeing throughout Daniel, is ultimately one of idolatry, which is to say the culture of the early, earthly kingdom is one where God is not central, where he is not loved and adored and revered above all else, but rather there is something else that is at the center, something else that's the ultimate point of reference. And I think we've said this many times at Trinity before, but it's important to point out According to the Bible, worship is not, you know, a thing for people who are religious. Worship is a human thing. Everybody worships. Everybody in this room worships. Everybody you've ever known worship. Everyone you've ever played with or worked with or gone to school with worships. Which is to say, we all put something at the center of our lives, our lives are oriented around some center, something that we long for, something that we hope for, something that we delight in. And this chapter is really a contrast between idolatry and the God who can rescue. It's a contrast between those first two characters, the government officials in Darius, and Daniel, whose faith is rooted in the living God who can rescue. And that's really the point of Daniel chapter 6. It's to expose idolatry and it's to call each of us here this morning to entrust ourselves to the living God and to do this regardless of what it might cost or how challenging or how difficult or even at times how terrifying it might be because the God of the Bible is the only God who can rescue. So if you have your text, uh, let's jump in together. Daniel chapter 6, if you remember last week, Darius and the Medo-Persian Empire had just conquered Babylon, and in chapter 6, verse 1, as the new ruler, Darius reorganizes the government, decentralizing power by appointing these 120 uh, satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three people over them, and Daniel is one of those. And Daniel does so well that Darius wants to put him over the whole kingdom, verse 3. But that's a problem for these other government officials. These people who are clearly after power and all that comes with power, because this new accountability system relativizes their power, relativizes their independence with someone like Daniel at the top. And so Daniel has to go. But unlike them, Daniel is not corrupt. Daniel serves the king faithfully. He doesn't manipulate things. He doesn't use his position in any way that they could find fault in. And so verse 5, they conclude, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And so they proceed forward with this plan of how they're going to pit Daniel's faithfulness to God against his role in the government. They're going to sabotage him. You see, for this group, if we were to try to get into what is the story that this group is living out of, the story that they are living out of is the world is a zero-sum game. I either win or I lose. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. I either eat or I'm eaten. 
You see, what they worship, what they've centered their lives around, the story that their lives are lived in is one of power. And let's remember, if you were with us a couple weeks ago when we looked at Daniel chapter 4, and we saw the destructive power of idolatry, the book of the Bible, the, the Bible starts Genesis 1, right? And humanity is created in God's image. And we said, what is an image meant to do? An image reflects we're meant to reflect God, to reflect the original. Human beings made in the image of God, it means one of the fundamental aspects of, of who we are is we're reflectors. And we really can't help that. We are just going to reflect something. So in Genesis 3, when humanity turns away from God, when we turn away from God and we listen to a serpent, a beast of the field, we become beastly. It dehumanizes us. We become vicious and violent. I want you to think about these government officials and how they're acting. They are threatened. Their power is threatened. Their autonomy is threatened. What they love most and they've centered their lives around is threatened. And they become like beasts. Daniel has to be destroyed. Now, we'll come back in a moment and consider this plan that they hatch when we, when we go to Darius. But for now, look at verse 6. This is really interesting. Uh, in verse 6, you'll see a phrase, went as a group. Verse 6, so these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king. This same phrase is repeated in verse 11, when they go to spy on Daniel. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel. And then it's repeated again in verse 15, when they go back to Darius and they remind the king, your law, the law of the Medes and the Persians, cannot be changed, and so Daniel has to be killed. He has to be thrown to the lions. Verse 15, then the men went as a group to King Darius. This, this verb that's translated went as a group in, in some contexts can just mean, you know, something like a gathering, an innocent gathering. But in other contexts, it can carry the connotation of conspiracy or even rage. And as one writer that I was reading this week pointed out, this same word, the root word, is found in Psalms chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, why do the nations rage? Why do the nations conspire? The rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains. Let us throw off their shackles. And is that not what we see right here? I must have power. I must have control. No one is going to rule over me. But there's more that's really interesting about the, these characters. If you look at uh, verse 24 of chapter 6, it's a really interesting word choice used to describe the accusation against Daniel. The word accuse literally means to eat or devour. These men want to eat up or devour Daniel. And interestingly, this same verb is used in chapter 3, verse 8, to speak of the Babylonians who maliciously accused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Jewish exiles, for not worshiping Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And it's used again in chapter 7, we're going to see next week, where the nations are depicted as ravenous beasts who devour one another and who devour God's people. So just one example, Daniel chapter 7, verse 5, listen to this. And there before me stood a second beast, which looked like a bear. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, 
eat your fill, same verb, eat your fill of flesh. And three other times in Daniel chapter 7, the same word is used to describe the beastly, violent nations who eat up and devour their victims. And again, what's the point? This is what idolatry does to human beings. It might sound crazy, it might sound extreme, but God, again, is giving us insight. He's giving us a window. This is what idolatry does. And consider the outcome. What happens at the end of Daniel chapter 6? What happens to those who sought to eat up and devour Daniel? They get eaten. Those who live these lives of beastliness and violence, their lives are consumed by the beasts. And that's what the idols of power and control and autonomy do. They result in destruction. And notice, not just for them. It results in destruction for those closest to them. And I know that's one of those things like we read them and it's like, oh, that sounds so awful. Every time I read the Bible with my wife, Erin, those passages always stick out to her. But realistically, we know this when, if you have children, for example, you have those moments where your child's struggling with something or there's like a moment of rage or jealousy or something and you go, that's me. That's what I do. I've passed that down to them. This is what idolatry does. It is destructive. Well, second, let's look at Darius, because we see another aspect of idolatry exposed. So if we go back to verses 6 through 9, the government officials, right, they come to Darius, make King Darius live forever, and they present this great unified front, you know, King, all of your government officials, all of us, there's not one missing, we're all here, the prefects, the administrators, the satraps, the advisors, the governors, we all agree that you should make this law that for the next 30 days, no one should pray to any other god or human being except you. And if they do, they go to the lions. Now, what's most likely going on here is not that Darius is becoming a god for 30 days. It's kind of, kind of a strange thing. I mean, if he becomes a god, why, why not go 60 why not? I mean, why wouldn't you just keep it going, right? Um, the idea here is probably more that Darius is the only representative of deity, of the gods, for this period of time, and all prayers are going to be mediated through him. So in a sense, what we have is a very similar situation to chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar erects this statue and everyone is to come and bow down to it. And the point is likely to bring unity to the various people of this kingdom, if Darius is the only representative of the gods for this period, it both elevates him and it establishes political and religious unification. And so for Darius, this, that sounds like, great, yeah, this is a win-win, let's do it. But as we know, as we've read, Darius has no intention that this is going to result in a conflict for Daniel. From his perspective, verse 7, everyone's there and in agreement with this idea. He's not trying to hurt Daniel. And when he finds out, verse 13, that Daniel has violated this law, he's not angry like Nebuchadnezzar was, furious. He's distressed. And he wants to save Daniel. Verse 14, he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. And yet Daniel's thrown into the lion's den in verse 16, all Darius can do 
is, is hope that perhaps Daniel's God will be able to do something. And what's interesting, again, here is, like in chapter 3, we don't get a play-by-play of Daniel's experience, right? Which would be incredibly interesting. What was that night like? Just like in chapter 3, where we don't get the perspective of the men in the furnace, rather, we get the perspective of the king. We get the perspective of Darius. And again, I think the narrator is trying to show us and expose idolatry, right? Because here's Darius. Here's the king. He's supposed to be the one in charge. He's supposed to be the one with power. He's supposedly the sole representative of the gods, and yet he's utterly impotent, completely powerless, to rescue Daniel. And with that powerlessness, you see stress and anxiety. And the contrast couldn't be more stark because the way the narrative's told, it it almost appears as if Daniel has a better night's sleep than Darius. Darius is in the palace. Daniel's in the den of death. And he sleeps better than Darius. Darius, who has access to the best food and the best entertainment and the best mattress available to an ancient Near Eastern king, he's got all this stuff, but it's like meaningless to him. And it provides no comfort, and he, and he doesn't eat, and he's, there's no entertainment, and he can't even sleep. And I want you to think about, right, your life for a moment, because as Jeff pointed out a, a week ago, there's so many things in our life that can make us feel kind of like we're kings, and we're just, we have control. And that can feel really good, and it can feel really comfortable until you're confronted with a situation. You're confronted with a diagnosis, or you're confronted with a situation in your job or in your career, or in a relationship, maybe in your marriage, or with a kid, and you can't do anything. You're utterly powerless. Your powerlessness is exposed. And is there a wonder why so many of us and so many people in our world at times, we're we're, we're so stressed, we're so anxious, because we know that we can control so very little. But there's something else I think that's really interesting here that I think is helpful for us to see. Flowing out of this culture of idolatry, something that if you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, you probably feel this keenly as you go about life. And it's this, that in this secular age in which we live, this space where we do life, where functionally God is ruled out from the start as being relevant in any way, there comes these inevitable conflicts between a follower of Jesus and the way of our world. It's like the rules of the game have been set in such a way that centering your life on Jesus and the worship of God, like that is going to be contested. And sometimes this might be intentional. You might think of places in the world where, like Daniel chapter 6, unjust laws are intentionally set up to prohibit the faithful worship of God. But then there are other times where not due to any intention, you know, any intent or maliciousness, that a wider culture of idolatry, like a really strong river with this really strong current, directs and shapes and forms our lives in such a way that it becomes harder 
and harder and harder to be centered on God and to follow Jesus. Right? Think about, think about the way our world shapes us to live and be in the world as individuals, unconnected from other people, incredibly individualistic. And think about how easy it is to think, I'm going to download a sermon from my favorite preacher, not someone who lives by me, and I'm going to download my favorite worship playlist, not the one that someone else picked out, and I'm going to avoid all those messy people and all that sinfulness, and I'm, I'm just going to be by myself and try to do this thing. Right? But that's not what God has called us to. Or think about work or overwork, right? Work is good. Work is something that God gave us in creation. It's a gift. But think about how we can be drawn into an idolatrous relationship with work or with productivity where the narrative that we're living day in and day out is teaching us to live in a different story where humanity's chief end is to get as much done and make as much money and grow the GDP so that we can consume forever. But that's not the story that God is telling or, or think about, right, kids' activities. And again, this is not bad stuff, but how easy is it if you have kids, and I'm just starting to experience this, to center our lives around our kids and everything good that we want to provide for them, right? Sports and music and education and enrichment and so on until at some point in time, you know, something takes over Sunday mornings and our lives get so busy with all of the stuff that we're doing and we're so overwhelmed and all we want to do is we just want our kids to do well and we want them to get into a really good school and we want them to be successful and we want them to have these great lives but then there's no time for community and there's no time for prayer and there's no time for service and there's no time for Jesus all of these and more no one has to target you. There's just a flow of life that, in a sense, catches us up and roots us in a different story, and day in and day out through the patterns of life entrenches us in a completely different narrative that's centered around the world and the things of the world. But let's look at Daniel. Because here's a person whose faith is deeply rooted in God and his life is deeply rooted in God's story. And we see this in how Daniel responds. I mean, pretend you've never read this story before, right? It is amazing what he does. Verse 10, when Daniel learns of the decree that's just been published, he goes and he prays. And he prays, verse 10, just as he had done before. The decree changes nothing. Chapter 9 of Daniel, which we'll look at in a few weeks, tells us that during the first year of Darius's reign, so right around this time, Daniel is reading the scriptures. Specifically, he's reading the prophecy of Jeremiah, and he is praying, and he is confessing to God the sins of Israel, and he is recounting the story of the Bible. In his prayer, he recounts how God is faithful and he has steadfast love. He recounts the rebellion of his people who ignored God and disobeyed his commands and that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet and they just wouldn't listen. And yet he pleads for God to act because he knows that God is a God of mercy. 
And if you notice in uh, chapter 6, verse 10, specifically we're told Daniel prays three times a day in his upstairs room where the windows are facing toward Jerusalem. What's that? Is that just like nostalgia? Like, oh, I wish I was home. No. 1 Kings 8, when Solomon is dedicating the temple in his prayer, Solomon prays to God saying, if your people sin against you and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, right? that's Daniel's situation, yet if they turn in their heart in the land to which you have carried them and they repent, if they rep- repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies and pray toward their land, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. The average person, if they're thinking, reads this story and asks, how could Daniel keep praying? But for Daniel, how could he not? Right? The God that he has served his whole life, he's something like 80 years old at this point, almost 70 of those years being spent in exile, this God is faithful, and this God has promised to redeem his people. It is unthinkable that he would stop praying. His life is a part of this huge cosmic story. Lions, no lions, that's not the point. God is at work. God is doing things. God is merciful, and so he's praying, and he's thanking God, and he's asking for help, and he's confessing the sins of his people. And he keeps praying, and he practices this daily prayer toward Jerusalem as an embodied act of faith, rooting his life in God and in God's story. And he goes to the den of the lions, and he goes trusting his God, and verse 23, he comes out with no wound on him. And the chapter, of course, right, it ends like chapter 4 of Daniel with this pagan king Like Nebuchadnezzar, Darius issues a decree. Daniel's God is the living God whose kingdom will not be destroyed. He is the one who rescues. Now, as we we start to conclude, I want us to think for a moment what this story would mean for Israelites. For Israelites who were in exile. For Israelites centuries after Daniel who never fully had control of their own land, who continued to look and wait for God's kingdom. Israel, who had turned to idolatry. That's part of their story, just like it's part of ours. They had sinned. They had trusted in other gods. They had trusted in foreign military powers to deliver them things that they could see, that they could feel like they had some kind of control over. And what happens is they go into exile. And the destruction of the exile in the Old Testament in a few different places is described like being eaten by beasts. Listen to Jeremiah 4, 7. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out to make your land a waste. Or Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 24, where God tells his people that if they turn away from him, if they break covenant, he says, I will send the teeth of the beasts against them. What's the point here? Israel's story is one where they themselves, in a sense, have gone into the lion's den. They had gone into exile. They had gone into the den of death. The destruction of idolatry had hit them. 
the awfulness and that experience of powerlessness they had experienced when they had entrusted themselves to something that had no power to save them. And yet here in Daniel, here's an Israelite who was redeemed, who was redeemed from the lion's den, who was in essence brought from death to life. And here was the hope that perhaps God would act, that God would restore his people and bring his promised kingdom. And this is why this morning we have gathered together to celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ, the greater Daniel, who is alive and who came out of the tomb. Daniel, right, think about the story of Daniel. Daniel goes into the tomb and he comes out by himself showing that God can rescue. But the greater Daniel, Jesus, comes out and he brings all of us with him. If you are united to him by faith, your death, he has died and you have been raised to new life in him. Daniel comes out of the tomb unharmed because he trusted in his God and was found innocent. But Jesus, though he trusted in God and though he was completely innocent and blameless in every way, he suffered for us. He was crushed for our sins. He was wounded that we might be healed. And though he died and he was buried, death was unable to hold him. And God, having raised him from the dead, bringing him out of the den of death, has demonstrated to the whole world what this passage is telling us, God is able to rescue. He is the living God. His kingdom endures forever. It will never end. He rescues and he saves. So entrust yourself to him and root your life in his kingdom and the hope of his kingdom. I want to invite us, as we always do, having heard God's word, let's turn now to a time of prayer. Let's turn to God in confession of our sins, of our misplaced trust, and turn to him as well in praise and adoration for his mercy. Well, I'll give us a few moments to do that, and then I'll lead us in, in a moment. <clears throat>